Welcome to another episode of the Bench Time Podcast, presented by HO Scale Customs. Now buckle up, you fine scale freaks. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 20 of the Bench Time Podcast with Todd and Brett Wiley. This week we have a guest appearance. It's actually his second time on the show. We have Stephen Hayworth, and he actually brought a guest on the show. The second guest of the show will be George Pearson. And we are going to just turn right into that interview right now. So I hope you guys enjoy it. And at the end, we'll have a couple other announcements. So here we go. Okay, so we have a recurring guest on our show again, Stephen Hayworth with the Rio Grande Southern. And you can check out his website at rgsrr.com. And he's got a guest with him, um, at George Pearson, who has the Tuscarora Valley Railroad, which is actually kind of in our backyards where we're doing the podcast from. So we are excited to talk with you guys about uh, a little bit about what we left off with with Stephen last time. And we're going to pick up with what George has to talk about with, you know, his scenery and model modeling the, the, the central PA area, northern central PA area. Um, it's it's kind of our home, our hometown. So welcome, guys. Thank you for joining our podcast this week. Yeah. Thanks. Glad Thank to be here. So is George a guest of a guest? George is a guest of a guest. That's the first time, I think. <laughs> but where are they going to end? <laughs> it's a, it's a, you're like the double mint twins in the show. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, people get Steve and I confused all the time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> No, it's uh, it's good though. I, 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 when I had reached out to Stephen the other the last week or so about doing uh, you know, the next episode with him, he had mentioned you and said that uh, a lot of what you do kind of falls in line with the scenery that we're trying to 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 talk about with the show and mo- just the modeling part of it. Just um, that you you'd be a good fit with our show. So we were more than right. happy to bring more people on. Just we're we're not. We're not discriminatory towards any type of modeling, any any era. It's all cool. We love it. So, yeah. <clears throat> now, before we get into, uh, I will, we're going to let George go to town here and tell us all about his uh, Tuscarora Valley Railroad. That's a narrow gauge railroad, correct? That's right. Okay, and, and it's also you know it also features what Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania Railroad um, locomotives that type of thing. Yeah, I've got really two layouts in one. Uh, the portion that is narrow gauge is a point-to-point of the fairly traditional around-the-wall style with a branch line. And then uh, I've got four tracks of the old Pennsylvania Railroad's main line that's middle division and just a portion of it that ran through Juniata County, which is where my little railroad was located. Because I'm, these are both real railroads, of course, as right. everyone would know that the Pennsylvania Railroad was, but a lot of people never heard of the Tuscarora Valley, but I like the model prototypes, and so I consider the four tracks of the Pensy kind of moving scenery uh, for when we operate the layout. Um, but still, I love the Pensy. That's great, Nick. Now that area we were just talking about that, you know, a little, a little earlier before before we began the show a little bit. Um, the um, the Pennsylvania Central Pennsylvania area, and the, what what was it? You know, ties to the area. What's the attraction? Well, um, my wife's family lived in Mechanicsburg when they were still alive. Oh, no way. Yeah, way. So, <laughs> Oh, my gosh. 
I was back and forth to Mechanicsburg a lot when I was dating my wife and when we were engaged and then visiting her parents over the years. They were fairly elderly and have passed away, but I came to love the area. I went to college in western Pennsylvania, but what really got me hooked was I've always been interested in short lines and narrow gauge, and when I discovered how many different narrow gauges were in Pennsylvania, uh, I just really got jazzed because we've all heard of the East Broadtop, or mo- many people have, and it's, yeah. it's the next county over from where I model but there were a lot of other little narrow gauges in the area. And so I had a, I got started on some research on the railroad and did a book on it and just got really interested. And out of that, when I actually first got a house and had some time and space to model, I said, what should I model? And the choice was easy. I'm going to model the railroad I knew best. That's, that's pretty cool. George, you should, you should talk about your book, which is yeah, please do. right there. I forgot that. Tommy, Tommy Warner's Red Booster. Yeah. yeah. It's a crazy title, but the uh, if you take the first letters of each of those four words, there's TVRR. Uh-huh. It, was, it was the uh, nickname that some of the local folks gave the railroad back when it operated. Oh, that's and so cool. It's just a little 27-mile railroad that operated from Port Royal in Juniata County, south down to a place called Blair's Mills, which is just over the border into Huntington County. And it lasted from 1893 to 1934. The Depression killed it like it did so many railroads. And I was able to put together a book with the help of the County Historical Society, and um, that was really the beginning of my interest in modeling it. That's that's cool. That's that's uh, it, this is so cool because everything that you're talking about is like our backyard. We love it. Yeah, you guys just hop in the car and drive west an hour or so, and there you are. I know. And you were even mentioning Mechanicsburg. Um, that's obviously that's where my dad is out based out of, and I grew up in Mechanicsburg, you know, my whole life. So it's a yeah. uh, it's a small world that's pretty crazy that that uh that you know you know the mechanicsburg area pretty well well i've also come to love central pennsylvania it's a beautiful you know part of the world just to drive around enjoy the scenery and a lot of rich history there and it's made for a lot of fun modeling too yeah yeah it's great but uh, you're you're in the chicago area now obviously because you're there with steve (laughs) (laughs) but uh he flew in just for this podcast. <laughs> well, you know, I saw the video and it's just uh, that you have of the of the layout and it's it's in, it was insane. Uh, Steve provided that for us and and I I it, you know we model uh, so each gauge, but it's we do city urban area from the 1930s and 40s, right? And, um, we're trying to generally do the Chesapeake Bay area, you know, um, Baltimore, Annapolis, that type area. And then the the, the outskirt area would be, you know, your your section of Cumberland, Maryland, that kind. So we're trying to kind of work in some B&O stuff. And, um, but we, we base our, a lot of our stuff, things we see, like George Selyus, of course, is going to be, um, influence for us and what style trying to right. and our cities are tight packed and what we saw with yours was amazing scenery I, I thought it was very very well done scenery on your layout in, in a country a country setting like Pennsylvania for us it's like Brett said it's very familiar we take it and for granted actually we do we do until you see it modeled like that and it was modeled so well I mean, the houses, the way the structures are, the, the, the mountains in your background. Um, your mountains, I mean, they, they, 
they're they're not just a backdrop. They're it's a mountain. I mean, <laughs> with the trees, it, it's it's it was awesome. You know, it, it, it's very impressive. Yeah. I got to say, a lot of the a lot of the trees and the grass scenery and the other stuff that I've done is all inspired from being over at George's for operating sessions and just looking at what he's done. So, do you um do you both? And, and I skit and see his work as well. Steve is excellent with it as well. We talked to him. I seen his, it, and I was going to draw a parallel to the two. And uh, you, I I was going to ask you that, Steve. So I'm glad you said that. <laughs> very familiar. Have you guys Have you guys um, contributed work to each other's layouts also in in you know in any point in time, or at least inspiration? I know Stephen said he has uh, received some inspiration from your layout. Have uh, you worked together helping each other build it? Uh, you helped me fix the locomotive ones. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that counts. I gave you an old half-broken engine house. That's right. Well, it got <laughs> part of it's just that, you know, between um, jobs that we both have and family stuff and church stuff, and, uh, and um, also, I think we're both blessed with having connections with a lot of other modelers. There's an awful lot of good modelers and operating stuff that happens in the Chicago area, and boy, if, if we didn't have to say no sometimes. We'd probably be out about every other day playing track <laughs> sure. So uh, at this point, we haven't actually worked together that closely. Yeah. But okay. it's been fun visiting because I, I love the Colorado narrow gauge. And um, Steve's been a great addition when he's able to join us for operating sessions. And just, I mean, you guys maybe can appreciate, uh, it, for us, it's not the only way you model, but for, for us, knowing the history of an actual railroad and then using that as a basis for our layouts has been fun. Yeah. Uh, I've, seen, I've seen wonderful fantasy layouts like Celios and the others, and they're great. Uh, but what spins my wheels, and I think is that true for you, Steve? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the history is, is one of the big lures that pulled me in. And then really understanding the field, just, just, I guess, empathy, putting myself in that time period and in that place. Right. And then trying to recreate it. I, I just get a lot of enjoyment out of that. Right. Yeah, now, I noticed that. We kind of have. We kind of have a hybrid um, between the two. I know we. You, you guys do a lot of the uh, prototype modeling, or not prototype modeling, but you do. You pick a, you pick a specific era and you pick, you pick a specific, um, you know, railroad. And you, and you do it to scale. And you do it very well, actually. And you you both have done a very good job of uh, capturing the region uh, to make it look like exactly like it is. But, and we're kind of doing a hybrid of it where we're not necessarily doing a fantasy land of George Selios's kind of modeling, but we're also trying to kind of capture the Annapolis feel or like the Harbor town type of feel. Um, And I know my dad was down in Annapolis a few months ago and that's really what we're trying to, making an, our own version of a Annapolis, basically, um, a harbor town. We're cherry picking our favorite parts out of the, mm. you know, two or three big harbor towns on the East coast, um, and mashing them together. And I noticed that on the video I watched today, of uh, George's is that he had, uh, it, it, yeah, I, he, I don't want to use necessarily the word prototype, but it is, it, it's in operation. It's a, it's kind of a prototype in operation based on history and it, and, and I, it was fascinating to listen to you speak about the history you know, of the region uh, and the mining and everything else that you talked about and Steve did the same thing when we had him on the first show 
it's the same kind of thing that he was talking about. His model is based on, you know, the, that Colorado region with this real Grand Southern. And it's it's the same. It's, I love, we're history buffs. Brett and I are big history buffs. So we can appreciate that entirely. It's, it's an awesome work. Well, thank you. That's that's what spins my wheels, too. So, but yeah, no, I, I really appreciate uh, the history that you guys put and the research you put into um, both of your layouts. I know we talked with Steven in length last time we had him on the show about his website, and it's just a library of resources for the Rio Grande Southern. Um, and, and, and your YouTube videos, I think, I think, uh, I think I would rather, well, I guess I'm a little jealous that you know a lot more about my area for, for railroading than I do. So we'll just say that. We'll leave it at that. Okay. I, the only thing I can relate, and this is, and this is not model railroading, but when you were talking about, um, you were talking about like old mines and old uh, kind of the what was the one the the self acting inclines and everything. Right, right. It, it, it reminded me of uh, back in March, and I if you listen to podcast, you might know I, I run a, I run a lot. I run I run ultra marathons, and back in March, I ran an ultra marathon <laughs> along the Tuscarora Trail in PA. Nice. And at one point. We were actually running an old cutout into the mountain that was an old mine that was connected to the railroad you were talking about. So it clicked wow. with me. I was like, oh, my gosh, I was standing on that. It was <laughs> it was really cool. And um, <laughs> it makes me want to go back out there now on and just hike around in that area and find old railroad cuts because I know they're out there along the trail. So there's there's a bunch that I realized was out there that I never even looked into that you were talking about on your YouTube videos. I mean, one way, you know, abandoned railroads are kind of sad because it was some business failure, really. It's a company that no longer was needed. Right. But on the other hand, it's just a fascinating part of local history. Oh, and uh, like you, visiting these areas, it's just a beautiful area just on its own merits. But to realize what went on in terms of railroading. And then, again, I think I, I love being able to model that scenery just partly because I love it. And I don't get to see it that often living in, in Chicago. Right. And I think... And, uh, the structures that you have on on your website on your on your video, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, the, you said you, a bunch of them you modeled based on um, you know real structures in that yeah. one town near the end of the video. Yes. Um, uh, and are they? Did you did you go to that region and take photos of those? And how, you know how did you build them accordingly? Yeah. Um, when I got interested in the railroad in 1985, I. Uh, took a bunch of pictures of the town as it then existed. And as you know, anybody knows who lives in the mid-Atlantic region, there are an awful lot of buildings that go way back. I mean, pre-Civil War structures are not unusual. And at the time, I didn't have a layout, and I didn't know if I ever would have one again, but I was fortunate to remember to take photographs. And it's especially important because some of the key buildings that you see in the pictures of the actual railroad, most of them are gone now. Uh, they just, you know, age has taken them. The area has been repurposed. So not only did I have photographs that I could reference for my own modeling purposes, and in a few cases took some measurements, but also uh, it, I didn't think of it then, but now I'm glad I did because most of these buildings are no longer around. Right. They, they, were, they were very impressive. In fact, at the beginning of them, towards the beginning of the, uh, the video, 
you had one of the grist mills, it's like a yellow colored uh, flatboard sided grist mill. It was beautiful. And uh, your 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 structure modeling is is awesome. I really love it. Well, I before it struck home, but but um yeah, it's very very well done. Now your stone structures, you have a bunch of stone structures that you do as well. Cut stone or you know, yep. um, random stone. And and uh but how do you, how do you go about you know, how did you go about creating them or creating those? Yeah. The uh as you know, anybody again who'd be familiar with the mid Atlantic region, there's a fair number of buildings, especially pre Civil War buildings that are either made of brick or field stone or limestone of some kind. And I did like most people and sort of checked out what kits were out there and available and quickly discovered that there really aren't very many buildings available right. that look like the sort of buildings you see in an older community like Mechanicsburg or Chambersburg for that matter. Mm-hmm. And so it became obvious if I wanted to do those buildings, I'd have to scratch build them. The short answer is that I very, very seldom use embossed stone or brick papers I almost I use papers. I almost exclusively use just 2D, but the high quality ones that you can purchase, or in some cases, I made my own. Wow! You couldn't tell that they were 2D. There's no, no, you fooled me. Way. Well, that that's part of it. I mean, we're if we talk about detailing, the you know, I'm a, I'm a big believer that if you have enough detail that's 3D, if you have a little bit of 2D, such as brick or stone, people won't notice. And I've had people ask me the same thing when they're in the layout, looking at the actual buildings. The uh, stone hotel that you see in the town near the end was one of my favorites because it reminds me of so many of those early buildings that you still see around the area. The stone for that was a result of my wife's workplace. Uh, She worked at a school, and they had a new um, sort of pebble stone patio put in, you know, some kind of pebbles embedded in concrete. Mm -hmm. And... uh, it was all fresh and new, and I looked at it and thought, hmm, went and got my good digital camera, shot a bunch of pictures, printed them out, and bingo, I got nice random fieldstone uh, walls wow. for my building. Oh, that's <laughs> pretty cool. But, you know, most of the good, at least the ones I like best for brick paper and stone paper, are people that take digital images and weave them together to produce a sheet that you can sell commercially. But it also shows that if people want to do this, the advantage you get, of course, is that the Especially on the brick, you get the variegations of a real brick wall that's worn over the years. Right. Every brick's right. not the same color. Right. And that's the challenge of doing the embossed stuff. You, the embossing gives you the 3D look, but to try to color the individual bricks. Anybody who's tried that at HO scale knows that's, that's a ticket to the loom there. Right. <laughs> we actually have. <laughs> I, I've done I, it a few times, and I don't, I don't care to do it again. Yeah, my condolences. <laughs> yeah, no, I lost a week of my life. Well, but, uh, I was majorly impressed with that because you know, we study, uh, um, for many years, I was a Civil War reenactor did both sides. Right. Uh, we Civil War reenactors, so we were pretty hardcore. But I knew a lot of history. I actually did some history programs and things for uh, National Park Service and, uh, and other places in Gettysburg. So close. And... Um, yeah, you got a point there. I got to keep myself keep some perspective here. <laughs> but that was uh, one of the things I was blessed with is that when I went to Met- to model the Pennsylvania Railroad portion of it, the standard gauge, I also wanted to try to include primarily structures that had existed in the same area where I'm modeling, and it just happened that the Pensy had this massive coal dock there, coal wharf they called it, 
this huge overhead structure that ran across 12 tracks at perpendicular tracks and locomotives could pull up underneath and coal and water right there without having to go off on a siding or something. And that structure has been gone since the late 1950s, but it was a great thing to model, even if I had to restrict myself to just six tracks. <laughs> Only six, right? It is, it is an impressive structure, too. Let me tell you, I was really, I thought that was really, really cool. Um, yeah, having, having seen it up close, I have always impressed with that. I can't tell you how many close-up pictures I've taken of it. Yeah. Your track work uh, is also superb. But I noticed along your tracks, um, just like with Stephen's tra- uh, layout, I noticed along your track work, you have some incredible detailing with your vegetation. Um, you hear people say that tracks should be modeled just like the buildings and the locomotives and cars, and I think they're right. Um, sometimes that requires more or less work, but you know you've touched on it already. I don't know. Maybe Steve can talk about how his approach worked. But for me, I wanted to capture the feel of a region, and part of the feel is, you know, you're not in the Southwest with sagebrush and desert. You're in a fairly lush part of the eastern portion of the United States, where everything's green and pretty overgrown. And, uh, so. I wanted it to be blending in with the scenery. I mean, that's nothing particularly unique about that. I was blessed in that, again, the, at the time I was building the scenery, some of the good modeling products that we sort of take for granted now were coming online. The high-quality trees like super trees that people use. Yeah. You know, a wider variety of foliage choices than just the old ground foam, although I've got plenty of ground foam on my layout. And I think my favorite has been the grass... Uh, static grass machines that are now available because anybody who's been in the area we're talking about knows that you see lush field grass in the summer all over the place and that needed to be part of the look oh that's that's great now now i know what um we were talking about with our last guest we had uh doug uh boss uh, scally from uh, fos scale models and he was talking about uh groundwork that yet too and and we're just now getting to that section of our layout where we're getting ready to put that down. So we're kind of fascinated. Well, well we had it down. Really yeah, we had it down. We had a hard, we had, we ripped it all back out again. So we we're start <laughs> we, we started over again. <laughs> but um, we're fascinated with that. And he, like he mentioned, just like you just said, um, it, it's interesting. You can't just have a couple different types of ground, uh, you know, ground foam and static grass. You need to have he said, like, you know, anywhere from 10 to 10 to 15 different types of coloring and and uh, ground 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 materials to do it, to make it, to blend it all together and make it look realistic. And, and I think you guys have captured a lot of that, which is, like I said, very impressive. And, and uh, I guess I do. How did you get that, Steve? I mean, what choices were you making for your... So, uh, basically, I did, you know, wet paint and sand... And then diluted glue, and then um, uh, two millimeter. I think I used just woodland scenic light green, just as a base. Or sometimes I'd use their their dry color, mm-hmm. so that kind of the 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 low grass base color. And then I just layer longer stuff over that, you know, of right. different varieties and different variations. And didn't really try to make it too smooth, but um, in different sections, I had some that had more darker greens and more that were more dried out yellow things. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I uh, I do the same thing as far as the basic construction. I start with a brown coat of latex paint onto which I sprinkle uh, real dirt and various colors that I've sifted and saved in coffee cans. And on top, once that's dry, then I go back and lay down whatever additional ground cover I want. My preferred glue, although I'm sure there's many different ways to do this, is a product called Eileen's Tacky Glue, which a lot of modelers know about. And yes. You, you mostly find it in the Michaels or Hobby Lobby for various crafters. But I thin it out a little bit. The trick with static grass is always how to get the glue sticky enough to hold the grass upright, but not so set that it won't accept the grass blades and, and glue to them. So it takes some practice, but uh, yeah, layers and variety is key because I find when I'm driving anywhere, especially back in the east, especially if I'm on the interstate and can sort of pay attention without getting into trouble on the highway, <laughs> it's worth just noting the, the sheer variety of colors and shapes. There's a lot more than we usually notice because we, we just take it for granted. But if you can capture that without overdoing it and making the thing look cluttered, then you get, I think, a nice effect. Definitely. I, I, um, I, do, I do share your love of Aileen's uh, tacky glue. I think I, I'm looking at, on the other side of my laptop right now, I have like four bottles that aren't even open yet. <laughs> good man. What's that? Good man. That's, that's yeah, good. It's, 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 like, <laughs> it's one of those things where I think my wife every year for Christmas gets me a bottle, puts it in our stocking, or it's like a cheap <laughs> gift. It's a cheap gift that she knows she can buy me, and I'll be elated because I got a new tacky glue bottle. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> I have a couple spare bottles of it, too. I even have the jumbo bottles but, of that stuff. But again, again with, your, <laughs> with your statement on um, the grass colors, it, and I'm sure it's like that with any region, and we talked in length about not grass, but um, rocks, rock faces, and, and, and the colors of dirt. The last time we had Steven on the show, uh, right. it's, it's the same thing. When you're driving through our, our region, and I'm sure when you're driving through you know, the Colorado region or anywhere, and you, and you look at the scenery, it's, it's not the, – the one thing you see with, with some models is, or some model railroads is it's and, – and I'm not – we're not neither none, no no one here is trying to say that you're wrong doing it. It's your world. You can do whatever you want. But when you notice, yeah. when you notice the colors that are just that are in the fields, even field to field or or you know one meadow between woods or whatever, it, it's all different. And uh, and and just by switching up the colors of grass and using using a dozen different colors of grass, you're able to really blend and make a whole uh, diverse scenery with different colors. Yeah. So it's, I, 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 now that we're getting back into scenery with a uh, layout version 2.0, uh, I'm looking again now that it's summertime and seeing the different colors that are out there and realizing, uh, you know, we really need to learn to start mixing our colors better with grass next, the next time we do it. Yeah. I think the big danger is it's easy to make it too uniform. Although there are places where it, you know, if it's been planted by a farmer or just happens to have one species, it'll look that way. But right. very, very often, uh, nature isn't all that uniform. And so I purposely mix it up with trees. The, one, the two things I choose to do where I differ from following prototype is most of our basements, and I would include mine, are not nearly as brightly lit, of course, as outside. And most no. modern. And I have found that if I match a color, say, of a foliage in a package to the outside color, and then I install that 
foliage in my basement. It looks too dark. Huh. So I, I purposely chosen, I've got standard fluorescent bulb lighting. I purposely chosen to use lighter shades than I probably could justify by matching the prototype because once it's in my basement, I think it actually looks better, even though technically it's not correct. So when you, when you're matching, when you're matching your scenery shades, you, you always go a few shades lighter than what it actually is in real life. Yeah, that's that's my that's worked for me, and I'm sure there's no one right way to do it. But right. part of the thing is that it's sometimes overly tempting, especially with the ease of our digital photography now, and you know, cameras and all our phones, to think that everything can be prototypically correct. The other place where I knew that um, isn't the case, and I found that out the hard way, is when I first started doing trees on my layout. I looked at my neighborhood and looked at the trees that I remembered from Pennsylvania and did a rough guesstimate on their height. And it's not unusual to see a tree that's 70, 80, 100 feet high. That's not unusual. Right. So I put, I put one on the layout. It just looked odd, way too big. <laughs> What's wrong here? Correct. I measured it. And the answer is that sometimes what we're doing with the hobby is a form of sort of illusion, not in the worst sense, but in the sense of, we're creating a scene the way a painter creates a scene, and sometimes they choose to exaggerate features because right. even though it's not technically correct, it will actually be more pleasing to the viewer. And so for me, making choices like that is partly a question of what the prototype look like, but also a question of what looks right in my basement under my lighting conditions and with the overall models. And if you think about it, almost nobody... Well, I shouldn't say that. I've been to a narrow gauge convention where people had authentically tall trees on their layouts, but most of us don't do that, and it looks fine. Right. And, you know, I, I've done the same thing with things like ballast, for example. So, um, you know, on my railroad, it's it's a sandy dirt ballast, and so when you go out in the real world and you look at track like that, you say, oh, it's, it's gravelly and kind of rough. Well, I tried finding, um, using... Um, um, like grout, flooring grout, you know, that comes out really super fine. The problem is when you put it on the layout, yes, it's probably closer to scale, but when your eye looks at it, it isn't. So I went a little bit bigger so that when your eye looks at that, it says, oh, that's a gravelly thing. So it's not an exact prototypical copy, but you want a, what, a prototypical effect. Right. You want the, the feeling, and there's a whole bunch of trickery involved in that. George was just talking about color. It's the same thing with textures and sizes and, you know, all kinds of things. It needs to please the eye. You have to, you have to be able to please uh, your brain in, into, into make, having it make sense. Because sometimes, yeah, exactly. even when you're building a structure, sometimes things to scale, like if it's on top of a building or, you know, I've put a couple big billboards on top of a building. And if you do it to scale 100%, it it just looks funky. It, it doesn't look right. So yeah. you, you have to you have to do a little bit of a like like George said. You have to play. You have to be an illusionist almost and uh, play to the eye to make it pleasing. And, yeah. and now that you mentioned that, I want to get back real quick on George's layout. We were, I I mentioned earlier about the the um, the mountains in the background that he has. They look just like the Pennsylvania mountains, uh, but you can you. They are realistically done. It looks like summertime with a full bloom of trees, and it's very tightly packed. Now, how did you create that? I mean, what kind of material did you use to create that, George? I've used two techniques, and 
I've been reasonably pleased with them. One, and that's probably the one you saw most frequently, is, and I got this from a model railroader article by John Nairich some years ago. He, he works with that club at the, uh, well, I'm blanking on the, the New England, uh, in some uh, technical school in New York that has a big railroad club. But in any case, what I did is I took standard masonite or hardboard, whatever was available at the big box store, cut it out with a hilly profile, which is pretty easy there in central Pennsylvania with those long mountain ridges, mm-hmm. um, painted a green that would you know, be a decent base coat, and then I applied ground foam in just the way you'd apply ballast. I had the piece laying flat on the, you know, oh. horizontal, not vertical. I put down, uh, I put down the ground foam, sprayed it with wet water, and then put glue on, just like you do with ballast. And uh, sometimes I had to do a little repair work, but basically that fills in. And because I was using the fine ground foam, hopefully, when you see it, you try. You, I'm after as you appreciate the illusion of seeing a mountain with full size trees, but at a distance. It, it did, and it recreate. It took over. Sometimes when you see a backdrop, some, and I'm not going to knock painted backdrops. I've seen some amazing ones, and I know there's some companies out there that make some really nice ones. However, yours replaces that with a realism, but it still serves as a backdrop. It it makes it 3D. It really did. And outside of that, beyond that, it's just clouds. And uh, it looks just like a Pennsylvania mountain scene. Um, I've known, I've seen a million of them. I've spent my life here. So um, I I know it looks like full bloom in the summer with all the leaves on the tree. Your your mountains in Pennsylvania are kind of rounded because of it at the tops. And, uh, and and, And you gave that illusion not as a backdrop painted on, but as a 3D model and it looked it, it like you said about the covering you nailed it i mean you absolutely nailed it and one of the other things the the odd illusions that you put in i don't know because it was on video and i couldn't see it quickly you have a couple buildings that are real tiny in the background and what's neat about that is they hold their they still hold that because they're so small they still hold just enough detail to where they match the type of buildings in the foreground, you know, with roof structure, everything, and it it, it, it was impressive. And I only saw it quickly on a on a video. Um, I I guess I guess you used a smaller version of buildings in the side in in the I guess the mountainous background. Yeah, I believe the ones that I used there were all photo cutouts. I don't I've got anything that's three D that's been miniaturized, but I've seen that where guys take N-scale structures and they put them at the appropriate place in the backdrop. What do they call that? Force perspective? I yeah. Think? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, in my case, I just scrounged through the photos that I had, plus all kinds of images you can pull off the internet and created images, which I usually glued onto some like uh, poster board stiff enough to hold it up. Well, I and couldn't I, even I, tell. That I was try, amazing. I try to keep the images both those those cutout mountains and the images, I have them stand away from the back, the, the ultimate backdrop, just a little bit so it doesn't look too two-dimensional. Right. I don't know if that helps, but by having them stand off maybe a quarter inch, that's something each modeler would need to try for themselves to see what works. But for me, that's... that's it worked. worked. It worked. Because I'll tell you, I, you had me fooled all the way because I thought you actually put small-scale, <laughs> end-scale 
I, I, they might have been Z skill. I didn't know what they were back there, but but I was like, how did he get it? How they look so real? Now I know their photographs, and now right. I know why. Now I know why it matches the foreground. Wow, right. it was well done. You fooled yeah. us. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the neat things, and you're sort of describing it um, when we visit layouts or we see videos like you did. The uh, visitor will often be able to only take in so much detail in any given visit. And especially since my preferred way of enjoying my railroad with my friends is doing operations. I mean, not everybody does that or needs to, but that's, that's the way I like to go. Right. Uh, your focus tends to be on the train and whatever is the surrounding scenery. And then just like when we're driving, we focus on the road, hopefully. And the rest, <laughs> the rest becomes a little bit more peripheral. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea I hope to accomplish is by having scenery that works, but isn't necessarily, you know, absolutely photo perfect, but it, it creates the colors and the shapes that are right. It's, if it's not as highly detailed as you could possibly make it, it still will, I think, produce a pleasing effect. I mean, Steve, you've got mountains and backdrop on your layout. How, how have you approached trying to create those scenes? I'm, mine are still evolving. I mean, I've got, um, so I'm using photo backdrops in some sections, um, and some of the grasses and later when I get to a trees, um, you know, are colors that are very similar in complement. Um, there's one section totally by accident where the, the type of grasses I had in front happened to match that backdrop exactly. And even in person, I can't tell where the line is. <laughs> that, hey, um, you did a good job then. And it, that was accidental. It, 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 just, it just worked out that way. But It's um, very hard to fool the modeler himself. Yes, and, and we and we don't even have with our layout. We will not even have a backdrop. Um, our layout is a three sixty layout, so you, you ah. will be able to walk completely around it. So what our backdrop essentially is is the center of our town. Yeah, we have to, we have to up. we have to put uh, uh you know well ours is all an urban. It's a very urban nineteen thirties nineteen forties urban city. So. Mm -hmm. We have to fool the eye by putting the biggest buildings in the center as our backdrop on both yeah. on both sides of the – actually, on all four sides of the layout. So that way they're focusing on the detail of the streets and the lower portions of the building, and their eyes will train to the center part of the higher buildings in the center. Um, that's kind of what we're going for that look. But we wanted to go – we spent so much time and, and you know, a lot of our, our building – we spent details. too much money on it. We did spend too much money, <laughs> but um, on on the detail part of it, the fine details, you know, and um, uh, you know, and, and on, on a lot of the structures, uh, you know, you build you build a structure and you put we put signage on a lot of our structures, and right. you we do a real. I think I like to think we do a really decent job with the signage on our structures, and we hate to cover them up by hiding them. So yeah. we wanted to make three sixty, and that way we're. The only downside of that is you are forced to kind of cover every square you inch of your layout, every angle, detail, right? right? And uh, so, so for us, it's difficult. I, I, but I love. We're gonna reach a point where we're done with the city, um, and that might be in fifty years or so. But uh, <laughs> at that point, then we would like to branch off on that at some point, and we'd like to do, you know, your more rural setting like you, like you guys have done, and right. um, uh, that. That is, uh, 
that is really neat uh, to see how you guys both do your backdrops and your and your scenery in that way. Right. We're still going to have some. We're still going to have some dirt, trees, and you know your grass and stuff. But uh, it's not. It's it's not to that scale. So when we see something like you guys have done, we're in all of that, and uh, it's very impressive. But, but uh, and I had a question for Steve real quick. And sure. I forgot. I forgot to get you on it last time, um, and we were going to talk a little bit about your electrical wiring and your telegraph wiring yes i had that uh, on a it, note it, here to talk about that with him yeah and how you get it into your buildings because i saw your photos on that and that was really really cool um can you give us a little bit on that well they're, they're just ideas because i haven't actually done that yet oh, okay <laughs> well, done, what are your ideas so i've, I've done you know, i've done a few um Structure kits, um, you know, all kit bashed, and then, uh, you know, based on photos of the prototype. Mm-hmm. But when I was doing that with the smaller buildings, and luckily the, the Rio Grande Southern has a plethora of books. In fact, I'm staring at them right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I could find a lot of photo evidence of these particular buildings. Um, and looking closely at them, and again, there's Sometimes with a model building, your eye looks at it and it says, oh, that's a fake. That's a model. And I was trying to figure out why your mind does that. And I think, to your point, it's it's details that are not quite right or that are missing. And one of the things I haven't seen modeled very often are all the, um, uh, the nuts and bolts, if you will, of what a, a working building actually needs. You know, we always talk about the doors and the windows and the shingles sure. and that. Of stuff, but an actual building, you know, has it's got maybe water pipes. It's usually got an electrical line or a gas line. In my era, mm-hmm. um, the railroad buildings often had telegraph wires running in and out, and the telegraph wires, having done a little research on it, um, you know, would run directly into you know, say the the dispatcher's office or another particular room within, say, a depot. Uh, right. electrical wiring would come into someplace else. And I just, looking at all these photos, it's like, you know, there's there should be a way to model all that extra little detail. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure, depending on where the layout physically is on the layout, I'm not sure if I could do real wires. Because, uh, again, I'm also designing the layout for operation. So, you you know, you can't have something that, the first visitor is going to break a wire and feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, trust me, I tried to put, I tried to hook up telephone line. Um, you did it on the hotel. You did it on the uh, hotel. Did, you just did. I had to buy a special type of line to make it work. And I bought this stuff called easy line. Yep, and right. um, I've had good, I've had good luck with that, you know, but uh, you, need to use, uh, you need to use real wire with 120 in there. That'll keep people from touching it. There you go. <laughs> well, that's that's the thing. And, and and you know, you said if if they if it would happen to snap or break, you know, then you're heartbroken because you it is so tedious. I was trying to tie, tie them onto the insulators of telephone poles. <laughs> oh my word! You know, I, and then, I, you know, and just you ended up CA gluing them, and you give too much pressure and it would pop right off on the other side and oh my it yeah, was or, so frustrating or the thing i noticed that and now that that model's been sitting in our basement for uh you know a month mm-hmm. the 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 more pressure that you had on the lines it actually pulls the sidewalk up a little bit before you get yeah. down to the layout yeah so now, i do like the easy line easy line better than other stuff that that's out there i think it's about the best product but okay. um 
I've had an interesting experience with it because I, I work at a place called Progressive Model Design where we build custom model railroads. Oh, wow. And um, we're just finishing a big project for a client, and I got to install the electrical wires. And the way we did it was, well, we prepped the poles. I forget which brand of model, you know, power power poles we used. Uh, we... We painted the insulators white first, and then we painted over them with a translucent green color that you can get um, either at the model, at the hobby stores, uh, crafter stores, or in some cases, I think the Tamaya brand of model paints has it. So you get a, that greenish, glassy look. But the way I attached them is I would start the, the line with a tiny dab of uh, Eileen's tacky glue. And once that's set, I would pull the line. Now, my, my boss wanted them to be pulled taut as opposed to the, the droopy lines that we often see because right. he, felt, he felt that we wouldn't be able to get multiple wire droops that all were the same. Um, that was his decision. I'm happy to go with that. So I pulled them tight. I would pull over maybe three or four lines, and I would just have the wire, the easy line, laying right next to the insulator, not up on it or twisted around it. And I would just use little dabs of uh, tacky glue to hold it in place. And I'd maybe do three three poles at a time and just keep doing that until I got the other end. And then at the other end, I would take uh, something fairly light, like a paper clip or maybe one of these tiny little plastic clothespins that they sell in craft stores. Mm-hmm. And I would, I would use that to hold the line taut. I'm hmm. um, just drape, you know, having it hanging down while the glue dried, and then I just snip it off. And uh, oh, that's a good idea. They they actually recommend the company recommends uh, what's called canopy cement, which is a clear, somewhat flexible stuff that I know yep. aircraft and car modelers use to attach uh, windscreens and, th- and the like, because they right. say that CA uh, um, ACC is a little too brittle, and mm-hmm. it sounds like maybe that's the experience you might have had. Yeah, it it, it kind of makes everything too taut to where the the right now that model I'm gonna have to redo it because the poles the two poles where I have it uh, joined from side end to end it's pulling them inward at each other. Yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> and uh, so uh, I I think I'm gonna change it to where they sag a little bit. I'm gonna try that. Um, I, I'm, I'm going with the older style pole, obviously, so I won't need to put six or seven lines on. I can get away with doing, you know, two or three lines or four, two right. or four lines. Now I do have canopy glue, so I could actually try that. And um, yeah, that's something. Be, that's something uh, we didn't. Not, we did not try on the on the first no. set of power lines we did. No. But, you know, I, I have a feeling that with the kind of experience you've had, and a lot of modelers have. If I was to do it on my railroad, I think I would try for the saggy lines because once I was realized I'd have to be doing this modeling work on this project, I started paying attention to power lines in a way I never had before. And the, about the only thing that are drawn taut back in the railroad days was telegraph wires. Those mm-hmm. seemed to be about as tight as could be, but everything else had your typical sag. So I think that'd be something worth trying to accomplish. I'm sure there's a way to do it that would give you a relatively even sag. So right. what, about, what about using... Because I've been thinking about how I would actually do this if I ever get there. Mm-hmm. What about using really fine diameter, like phosphor bronze um, wire so that you're not using thread? You're using something that looks flexible but actually really isn't. Well, huh. that's the challenge because I think you could do that and it would look good. I mean, we use phosphor bronze wire for various things on our models like hand grabs and uh, uh, truss rods and the like. Uh, the, the challenge would be potential damage. 
uh, because if you're going to have people working in and around your layout, if they bump phosphor bronze, it's going to stay bumped. The easy line will just bounce back. Yeah, that's true. But yeah, once it bends, once it bends, it's uh, it's a probably a lot more work to unbend that phosphor bronze wire. But you know, that's again, you know, you were talking, Steve, about you're right that we often don't notice things like the the power connection from the street poles to a house or a building. That's the kind of detail that remember that it adds a really nice layer but if but if you look at it, especially in an urban area but even in a in other areas your eye registers that right away and we're so used to seeing it that we don't even consciously pay attention to it but when it's missing it stands out and that's right. Right. one of those subliminal tricks I, that tell you the model isn't real same thing with weathering same thing with i also uh, think to 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 your point where um where you're saying when you see it, you realize it, it's there. But when it's it's one of the, it's almost one of those things where it's you see so many models that don't you see so many layouts and models that don't do it, where it's almost you're almost used to seeing it not there. So right. when you see that the wires and everything attaches to the building, you're like, oh my gosh, look at that! Like that, that's that is super realism, and um. A lot of the things you see in the in the hobby are not they don't they don't attach the wires to the building right off the pole. Right. So, you know, it, it really sets the models apart when it is done because it, it just stands out like immediately. And there's other vendors out there. I think it's is it Vector Cut, Vector something? But they make a bunch of little um, etched brass parts and they have things like, you know, a window fan and um, weather vanes and a whole bunch of really tiny little details in in etched brass that you can add um, things that you normally overlook. Actually, exactly the window fans you just mentioned. I uh, I have a bar mills. I just bought them. Uh, they're window fan assemblies. You can put them inside the windows. I just haven't gotten around. I I have to find the right size window for it and the right kit, but. I want to start adding some detail like that. And, and you mentioned about, you know, the electrical lines coming in, but you know, a lot of the kits will come with, and I think it's kind of funny. Uh, they'll, they'll come with a, a white metal cast part that is uh, an electrical meter reader or meter box. Right. It's on the side of a building, but there's no, you know, you watch people put them on their on their photo. You see photos of all the people's models of, you know, structures that have them, but there's no lines going into them. It's just on the wall. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, there's no there's no conduit or anything else going to it and that's another thing too conduit like you mentioned that too with water pipes and that type of thing um conduit would be another cool thing to, to model and you don't also see a lot of and i'm i'm just as guilty on this is um rain downspouts and gutters yep. i mean uh it's just uh something that you don't rarely see modeled um, yeah, I know Rick's products makes a nice version of uh, downspouts and gutters, but you're right. They're often forgotten, even though just about every house where it rains has them. Yeah. <laughs> you have to have them. I do not know Rick's has them. I'm going to de- definitely look into Rick's and see if I can get some, because I'm thinking about now, I-, I need to start putting them on. Yeah, we have, a, mean, whole, we have a whole city with barely any downspouts now, that, yeah. now that you mention it. Yeah, so... You know, you mentioned um, camera somewhere in your conversation, and one of the things I remember reading years ago when I first read the book about John Allen's famous layout, The Gorian Defeated, I think uh, the late Lynn Westcott wrote a book on the railroad, and he mentioned how early on uh, John Allen, who was friends with Cliff Grant, uh, 
he built a really nice model and he took a great picture of it and sent it to Cliff Grant. And Grant came back with all these criticisms and John Allen realized when he looked carefully at the photo that he was seeing things missing from his model that the photo showed, but he didn't miss it. It's, you know, just looking at the HO scale model. And my point here is that today with all our great digital photography so easily available, it's the easiest thing in the world to take a bunch of pictures of your layout. And sometimes if if you want to sort of see, am I getting the effect I want, shoot a bunch of photographs and then look at it on the screen and say, hmm, what looks wrong here? Or then maybe compare what you just did with uh, actual prototype photos. I find looking through the lens of a camera at the layout can be a nice way sometimes to help me figure out where I want to place things. And honestly, in some cases, not only do I use the camera to help me decide if I've gotten where I wanted, but also sometimes for our choice of where we put our buildings and where we put our trees. Mm -hmm. I'll give you one example. Uh, I've got uh, a fairly elaborate uh, three-story brick hotel in the town at the end of the video called the uh, Hotel Royal. And there were going to be trees between that hotel and the viewer because that's the way the real thing was. And when I first put them in, I used super trees with a lot of foliage. And I saw these great trees, but I couldn't see the hotel behind the trees. That's a problem. <laughs> so, all your mom. Yeah. so out came those trees, and they found another home. You know, We never stopped putting trees on layouts like that. And what I did is I went back to the earlier um, style of modeling that you sometimes see, and I think it's something you get at the florist or the craft store called gypsophilia. I may have the name wrong, but it's a fairly – lacy kind of uh, weed that you can you can t- uh, use um, florist tape around the base to create a sort of a trunk of a bunch of them. You've done amazing trees like that. I need to figure out a way to copy but that. The yeah. virtue of is, and then I put some foliage on them and stuff, but I use fairly thin foliage, and if you just look at the tree, the tree by itself will look like a model, not a tree. But when it's in the scene, it's diaphanous enough, it's thin enough, so you can see through the tree to the structure, which is the point of the layout. And there's, again, I'm, I'm cheating, but I'm doing it to create a certain experience for the viewer. Yeah, your trees are your trees are really, really nice. Yeah, and I, I would actually be interested in um, either having you explain how you make those trees for us and uh, kind of share for our, our listeners or, you know, give us a little bit of a tutorial maybe later on about that because they, they do look awesome and, uh, like, I don't gypsophilia. You said it was. I, I'm not sure. I think it's called gypsophilia, but it's well. We can because I, I, I go to the craft section of the you know Michaels or Hobby Lobby where they have stuff for people who do floral arrangements with dried flowers. Yeah, and I just look for something that usually it comes in bunches, and you'd have to tape maybe four or five little stalks together to create enough to make a tree. Yeah, but um, like I say, I use florist tape, which is a simple tape that you wrap around the base where it looks like a trunk, I, I give it an overall spray of a sort of dull brown or light brown or gray. Then I add whatever, um, I'm trying to remember, I'm using a product that's no longer available, but a lot of the, the scenery companies now sell stuff that's will basically imitate actual leaves. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a little paper yep. clipping, something you just, and then I put hairspray on the, you know, the part of the tree where I want that to go. I sprinkle this stuff on It's, and spray it again for the to hold it, and that's pretty much standard. That's that's how I do those particular trees. But right. I appreciate your comments. Uh, tree building is always a lot of fun, and yes. there's any number of ways to do it. 
And now the, that leave that leaves those leaves that you talked about. I I bought a bunch of them recently uh, from Scenic Express. And yeah, by the way, they're they're from the uh, Altoona area, and um, <laughs> they, which is very interesting. Um, I went to the Fine Scale uh, show uh, in in Altoona this past November, and they had a uh, a large display there. But then you could also go tour their facility as well as part of the show, um, and but they do make they make just about everything. There's nothing I don't think you can find anymore that you can't do a proper tree. I mean, and and I think you're right. You need to kind of go to a place like Michael's or Hobby Lobby or AC Moore, and where where you can actually you know get the dried flowers. I've made a few trees that way already. Um, their baby's breath is the other I've another used, one I've too. I've used baby's breath quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah, that might be, that might be the thing I'm using for all of my faulty memory. <laughs> and you just pop it. I just pop those little buds off the end, and yep. um, and then just re. Uh, I've know, actually, some kind of again. I've actually even from my own yard. I have a I have an old Japanese maple tree in my yard, and uh, if you're familiar with Japanese maple trees, they have very ornate, especially once you get towards the smaller branches. They have very ornate uh, branch structures. So right. I've actually even gone out in my yard and clipped uh, the smaller branches off because they're very when you when you cut them down to that size within like the the four to five inch clipping range, they actually look like miniature trees when you rip all the other stuff off of them as far as the trunks. So I think you've seen some of them, Dad. The the branches, yeah, yeah, yeah. the bran- and this is this is just a completely like if you have a Japanese maple tree in your yard. For the for the 1% of listeners that have it out there, um, <laughs> I've actually used Japanese maple uh, branches as far as uh, making some smaller kind of in-town trees. And, and they look they look pretty good. But it's, yeah. it, it is cool. When you go to the Michaels or you go to the, the big box, quote-unquote, craft stores, uh, it's easy to walk around and just go, oh, man, I could use that or I could use – you could turn this into that. It's it, You get lost quickly doing that. I usually make a point to maybe every six months just take a couple hours that I got free and just walk through the store, the whole store, just looking around because there's an awful lot of product. If you look at it and you think, hmm, what could this become? It, you can end up using it on the layout in ways that you know they never dreamed of, but there's all kinds of stuff there. Right. That's the oh, yeah. Thing to do. I could spend hours in those stores doing just that. <laughs> right. That and uh, I've, I've, I've done that a lot at Lowe's as well, and it sounds funny. But uh, Lowe's has a lot of other material, like building materials that you can you can use. Like we we use uh, drywall mud for a ton of our streets. So yep. my dad came over recently with uh, like a I don't know how big that <laughs> fifty pound bucket of drywall mud, and uh, we'll be we'll be slathering that on a lot of our streets well, here because soon. because you see the the smaller tubs that they that everybody in their tutorials ask you to use are are just a little uh, the dap adapt tubs and they're like you know if you if you do one single street maybe a uh, we ran out of that stuff in like a minute last time we yeah. bought a little tub <laughs> so i was like man i paid i paid like six dollars for that and then I, I walked over and it's the exact same stuff as any other joint compound and i walked over and just got you know uh, a, a, a contractor's tub of joint compound i paid i paid 14 dollars for it but we will have enough now for the next, I don't know, as long as, I guess, as long as we keep it sealed, 
for years. Yeah. I mean, we, <laughs> we can make the entire, uh, we could recreate New York City with that thing. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> we'll, we'll expect photos once you finish that, by the way. Yeah, we, we got a little bit to go. Uh, expect some photos in a few months for that one. But yeah, you're right. You know, there's so much there's so much out there. There's so much material out there. And so, yeah, there's no reason why, if there's something, I've said this many times on our podcast, is if you want it and you want to recreate it, there should be no reason in today's society, based on things that you have, you guys have already said about the phot- photography and digital photography available, and the, the resources as far as uh, materials uh, that are available to all of us, um, if, and even cheaply if you think about it, um, that it can't be redone or can't it, you can't reproduce it. So, yeah, uh, yeah, you just got to be brave enough to try it. <laughs> but uh, you know you. Yeah. Now, uh, Steve, well, another thing you were talking about before was your your signage, the, the depot signage um, you were interested in. And yeah, I, that's so that that's another thing um, is just the depots in these towns were the town center. So they were selling soft drinks. They were, um, you know, sometimes the railway express agency. They were the post office occasionally. But. In real life, if you think of just the neighborhood grocery store, you know, in a small town, you've got stickers for, you know, the band concert over at the school and the football uh, boosters club and just all this stuff. And that was really the same way with these older towns. And so another thing, again, usually zooming in now on the Internet, finding these old historical pictures and you can zoom to like ridiculous levels on them. Right looking at what that was it's like oh that was selling you know i don't know fanta grape or some soda that hasn't been around for right. you know 50 years and you can find those are easier to find those signs on the internet sure but little nuancey things like that that i think would add a lot um you know, call boards schedule boards for the railroad yeah that, know, that's pretty cool books and stuff now, now, Brett just is working on a building right now, um, and it has signage on it that he uh, made himself act- off of the computer. Yeah, and so it-, it actually didn't. The I'm actually working on a Carolina Craftsman Kit uh, Tucker Factory, and uh, it didn't come with many signs at all, which which is fine because that's that's how that building, that's how that kit originally was. Um, they just didn't include many signs, but. I figured, you know, it's a manufacturing facility, so I it should have some basic signage. In my opinion, is that it should have some basic basic signage out front, you know, some caution work area signs or uh, just some loading dock signs around the edge. And 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 it really, I sent my dad some pictures of it. I, we haven't shared them yet, but they uh, look like the small. It's like the small ones. It is the say, tiniest you know, sign you can make. Yeah, and you could actually read them. And what he did was he did it on his Photoshop. And this is what I'm saying: you could do anything if you if you really want it. And um, you can actually, if you zoom in with a regular camera lens after you've built it and applied the sign, it, you can read it. I mean, right. it, it is it's just some simple thing like where your heart at and stuff like that. And, you know? I, and I just found those signs by doing what what Stephen even did. I just went on uh, that I I did two things. I went on the National Archives site and I found some old photos of uh old historical photos of some old 
more famous warehouses or more famous manufacturing buildings. And I also just went on Pinterest of all places and I blew those photos up and saw old 1940s, 1930s kind of workplace signs and, and, and went on Google search, found those signs and printed them out and scaled them down to what I needed to. And, and they look good and, and they add a lot of character to a building. Yep. Yep. I'm upstairs in my, uh, uh, near my hobby desk, I just pulled a building out that I finished a while ago, um, and it's got a couple of the signs that we're talking on it, talking about. And you don't want to overdo it, but yeah, exactly right. I just went on the internet, found a few, scaled them down, printed them out. Yeah, um, and, it, and it, really high res when they're that tiny. But yeah, well, I was I'm fortunate enough to uh, with my job, I have some photo editing software that I can really print down to some extremely small scale on a, on a high quality printer. So uh, I'm lucky to be able to print very, very small stuff and have it be recognizable, but you don't have to go that small and, and, and still add a ton of character and a, a ton of detail to your building. And it's just simple. It's simple signs kind of like, uh, you know, the, the workplace safety, no smoking slash, uh, kind of, the one I the the one I'm looking at right now for this building I'm doing uh, the the Tucker factory it just says something kind of like uh, where is it let me look for it it says uh, safety record is uh, what does it say it's it's so small I can't even read it. I need glasses apparently it's uh, oh safety record nothing to crow about and it's got a picture of like an old rooster it's an old 1940s sign that I found. And it's just something cool, and it adds a lot of a lot of character to the building. Um, I just I, I love. You know, the further back you go in, in the era you model, the more signs you tend to see around. And I model 1920, and so there are still a lot of posters that were plastered up on you know wooden fences for the local circus coming to town or for oh, whatever. Yeah. And. One of my favorite places to go to get sort of flavor images is this website. Maybe you visited it called Shorpey, S-H-O-R-P-E-Y. No. No, but uh, I just wrote it down. <laughs> S-H-O-R-P-E-Y? I think I'm not sure it's P-E-Y or just P-Y, but Shorpey, they've got an incredible number of vintage photographs. But then I'm, you know, I'm looking at stuff that between 1895 and 1920. Uh, and anyway, but... We all can find our sites online, as you say, that right. having the internet and good printing is just a huge boon for being able to add that kind of detail. Right. Mm-hmm. And now and now in today's day and age, it's it's technology that, you know, almost everybody out there that's listening can can either has access to or can afford. So it's it's no longer, uh, you know, unobtainable to be able to print these things for yourself. That's right. So I'll tell you one of my frustrations with um, engine shop areas or railroad facilities is the rail fan photographers go out there and they photograph the locomotive, which is all nice and good. But when I'm trying to find like a like a caution sign on the door to the roundhouse, for example, or one of those no smoking signs, yeah, it's really hard to find them because someone's always taking a picture of something else in the railroad scene. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's funny how I often go looking through, you know, the kind of the corners of photos trying to find that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. That, that would be nice to have, have shots of, of some of the signs like that that are specifically that. Um, 
No. Like, I love the locomotive. I love all 300 photos of it. How about just one? <laughs> Give me one of the sign, please. Just one. <laughs> it's neat. I went to a um uh, a couple a couple weeks ago, my wife and I went to Strasburg, Pennsylvania, and um went to the Strasburg Railroad uh area where they have all the well we uh, what I eventually found was this antique shop in the town of Strasburg and it has tons of railroad memorabilia. Um, historic is historic menus from the train cars, you know, from the dining cars uh, of all the different lines in a box. I mean, it's you know, it's in, they're all in plastic sleeves and whatnot. Um, signage of all types is hanging on the wall. The metal signs, and it's all for purchase, of course. Um, and it, but it was neat to go in and check us check something out like that because then you're going to familiarize yourself with the signage that was of the time. And it, these are, you know, they had all different decades and decades of different you know, signs, menus, advertisements, uh, pamphlets for, for the, uh, for the rail services, for all the different rail services. And it, it, it was pretty cool. Um, yeah. Um, now, Hey, I got a question for George on, um, on the dirt. Okay. Yes. You said you had several different car. How many different types of dirt do you use on your layout? And then um, the other, the, the back part of that question, it really isn't dirt. It's a ballast. Um, I noticed that your main line has your, your main line with many tracks. You have um, like a, a, a gray ballast, uh, and then you have uh, a dirt type ballast for your your branch line stuff off the sides. I That's mean, right. So how how many different types of dirt and ballast have you used? Well, I've gotten in the habit of, for my purposes, of using three colors of dirt, and I just you know keep my eyes peeled for wherever someone is doing an excavation or there's some dirt out and about that I can gather. Mm-hmm. And I've got a sort of darker gray, a, uh, a mid-range tan, and then a fairly light sort of yellowish dirt which I got from near um, baseball diamonds. You know, they, huh. they paint, but they use this dirt on the pathways between the bases. Yeah. And I just wanted a variety of colors. Then what I do is uh, the usual stuff. I, you know, let it dry out thoroughly. And then I sift it into two or three grades. Uh, again, a fairly simple process. In my case, I use a piece of old uh, window screen to sift down. So I end up with the coarse stuff still on the window screen and finer stuff below yeah, and after that, I take a piece of uh, women's hosiery, uh, and I s- cut it up into small pieces, and I I rubber band a piece over the top of a glass jar with the dirt inside, and then I shake that. So I'm getting a dust, a really fine grade stuff. Oh wow! And in this case, when I put them down, I usually I either put them over the brown paint and just let them dry. Mm-hmm. Or if I want a stronger dirt color, I lay them down and then I would treat them the way I would with ballast. I'd use wet water, you know, water with some kind of wetting agent in it, and uh, I di- you know, I use a fifty percent dilution of Elmer's glue, but there's a number of different adhesives you can use. Right. The one thing uh, that I have sometimes done, which I've found to actually, to, to my eye, add to the the look I'm after, is I use an airbrush. And I have a portable air tank, so I can bring it around the layout any place I want. And 
I will put some, usually an earth or, you know, a light tan color. You can choose whatever works for the kind of modeling you're doing. And I lightly overspray the dirt roads. And for some reason, in my mind, that adds to the look. But that's one of those judgment things. But as far as colors, I just have the three colors that work for me. And, of course, remember that if you're particular about a color for that, you need to test how your dirt will look after the paint you dropped it onto all dries or after the, the glue dries, because sometimes it'll get darker right. uh, with, with being wet and glued. But that's how I go about doing it. Well, like I said, it it looks great. And I think Steve talked a lot a bit about his ballast and such last time as well. And uh, it it seems like you guys have the same kind of concept and you gathered up different types of dirt that that would match your, your, the landscape you're trying to, to, you know, emulate. Um, Yeah. I I know for the main line, the Pensy main line, I use some various types of conventional ballast, although I tend to use the what they call N-scale ballast because it's a little finer. Mm-hmm. But again, that's a judgment call about what looks right. right. On my Pensy main line, I have two, three tracks that are fairly dark because even after ballast is put down, there's a lot of soot and cinders and brake shoe dust that gets into the ballast. But then I have one track where they've just put brand new fresh ballast down, and that's a lot lighter. Oh, that's and, smart. And you do see that in photographs. That was a judgment call, and I wouldn't have had to do that, but it was just one of those little things I like to do. Yeah, I think that's that's neat. You give it some a different variety of looks. Yeah, it ended up and it ended up looking awesome. Yeah. And for the narrow, the narrow gauge, my little railroad. Um, well, how should I say this delicately? It was quote unquote ballasted, but what that really meant was it was just running on dirt and with weeds <laughs> growing the, the ties. And so, in that case, I just. I fill in with some kind of dirt that looks right to me. I don't even put the shoulders on it that you sometimes see because, again, they didn't do hardly any of that kind of grading. Now, you know, other people would use the cork or other things to give a shouldered ballast look. But in my case, I just put down dirt. I put down a little bit of the fine brown foam so it won't get caught up in the locomotive mechanisms. And my goal is that you can hardly see the ties beneath the foliage because that's in many cases in the summertime on my little railroad, the pictures, the train is looks like it's just running through a field. Just looks like thing, I, it looks like it's running in grass. Yeah. And I love that look, you know, having seen it in person lots of times, yep. and that's the exact same look I'm trying to emulate because RGS was the same way. Yeah. I, I noticed that on both of you guys' layouts. Exactly. I uh, like that. Where you have you have the dirt uh, and, and the foliage um, that's coming up. Well, not. The, the weeds and whatnot, your your dry grass, and it, it's it's coming up in between the ties, and that, it's it's a that's a really really cool look, and a lot of modelers don't really go to that, you know, to that length, and uh, or you know, it, it's not even so much a length, it's just it's a, a vision, a vision, being able to see it and you know see it in real life, and then going and recreate it, and you guys have, have captured that, but um, thank um, you. Now on. On that, um, um, on, on your track lane underneath, the, 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 do you use this particular type of roadbed down there? Well, I'll speak to what I've done. Maybe Steve can answer for him. Uh, on the Pensy, I went with the traditional, uh, sorry, I'm blanking for a second on the paperboard stuff that so many homes oh, There we go, homes. And that worked fine. It's got just the right consistency for driving spikes or nails into it, although I used all flex track, most of it. 
right. on the narrow gauge because there was virtually no you know raised profile for the rail like you'd see on a more conventional or better built railroad right. I, I just laid my flex track directly on top of the plywood that was a little bit of a pain because driving spike nails into plywood there's a, there's a, <laughs> a lot of little pilot holes and there are better there may be better ways to do it with some of the thinner materials that are available now right but in that case the the ground level and the level of ballast was all the same for the narrow gauge there are some, there are some places where I've done hand laid track and there I need to put down something um, into which I can drive spikes Wow, hand laid track, and you were and you were teasing us about painting bricks. Oh, <laughs> okay, God, God, God bless you, hand laid track. Yeah, That's... yeah, God bless you. That was um... <laughs> for your track. So on, on my track, um, on an older layout from my teenage days, I did what you did, George, and didn't like trying to drive little track nails in. Um, so what I did on the yards, I um, actually got a big, like a 50-foot roll of cork underlayment, which they put under floors. Um, it wasn't that much. It was like 50 yeah. bucks. It was this big, giant, huge roll. Um, so I used that about a quarter-inch thick. So I used that for all the yard and town areas. Um, that had the advantage of letting me cut away if I wanted a little depression in there. Um, yeah. To attach the track, I actually used um, acrylic caulk. Oh, wow. So I would just put caulk down, um, take a, a spatula, and, and make it fairly thin, and then just nestle the track into it, um, and then just take a bunch of canned goods. Beans were the heaviest. Beans were good. Um, and just <laughs> lay it down along the track and let it dry overnight. Um, we, we do that same thing with, with, uh, with putting the... Uh, cans on top of the cork wood bed and and uh, yeah, paint cans that Brett has down in his basement. But yep. um, yeah, that just to give it that weight and keep it from curling up and everything. But you're right, and and you know you mentioned that putting the cork putting the cork down even in your cities and such uh, or in your towns. Um, you know, a lot of military modelers uh, on a larger scale use a cork base on a lot of their roads, and then they'll recreate such things as potholes uh, below the surface of the road. Yeah, because it's easy to it's easy right. to create depth and, and texture within that cork because they can etch into it or do what they need to with it to create Correct. cracks or potholes. Yeah, like Stephen was saying with the depressions, he can put depressions in. It's a, it's a, it's actually a really cool medium to work with if you if you use your head with it. Yep. Yeah, and yep. then and then the rest of the railroad, um, I just use standard cork road bed. Um, on the rest of it, although the way that the scenery does, um, I've got the scenery coming, even the, the cardboard and um, plaster cloth I use are coming right up to the edge of that cork. Mm-hmm. And so um, I'm purposely, in most places, I'm purposely hiding the profile of the cork so that you, again, still have a fairly um, flat look, although I'm, I'm varying it. Uh, another detail in real railroads is a lot of cut and fill mm-hmm. you know, and they were leveling. And so there's areas where the roadbed has got to be a little bit above the ground. So then I leave a little bit of profile, mm-hmm. uh, you know, even with the plywood underlayment, leave it a little higher and let the scenery drop. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a little further on, you've got to cut. So then I bring the scenery up, you know, higher so that you've got a small cut to go through. Yeah. Um, that's cool. another that's another thing, even in, in flat farmland, you know, here in the Midwest, 
cut and fill is still standard because the land is never perfectly flat. Uh, right. That I don't often see modeled. It's another another detail. Um, but again, that's another thing to get real is you want, you don't want to look, for me, I don't want my track to look like it's laid on plywood. I want it to look like it was built on top of a rolling landscape. Um, you know, and so you, you've got to, even on flat stuff, you've got it for me, I've got to have that terrain move a little bit and then have it look like the track was engineered, you know, either slight cuts or slight fills to go over it. Yeah. The, the, the track was put in, um, to fit the landscape, not the, not vice versa. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And George has done that really well. And I've, I've tried to do that as well on mine. Very cool. Well, I got to say, guys, I am about out of notes, and I think we were all over Actually, the map tonight. I, I want to hit one thing, and we do this. Yeah. My dad and I do this. Um, my dad and I do. If you've listened to the podcast, we do our own "What's on the What's on Your Workbench Right Now" section. So, uh, if you guys wouldn't mind sharing, if there is anything on your workbench right now, it could be locomotive base, it could be modeling base, it could be anything. Um, if you wouldn't mind sharing kind of what's your current project, what are you working on right now, uh, what's on your workbench? That's cool. Okay. So, I'm just, I'm just bringing the camera over. No, that's cool. I'll show you the actual workbench. We won't, we won't use the video. <laughs> no, I know. So go ahead, George. Why don't you go first? I think you better go first, Steve, because <laughs> I've been working on some historical stuff recently, and I haven't actually done that much modeling recently. But I've got some. Go ahead. What do you, what do you got? Well, I've, I've, I've been caught up. The, the most recent work I've been doing is all this electrical work, getting my layout operational, um, some frog juicers and detectors for hidden track. Kind of not much detail in that, but it's functional. No. Uh, my actual, work, actual workbench, I've got... Actually, it's a locomotive George gave me of it. I'm rewiring and um, putting some uh, feeders on the tender to get pickup. Um, I've got, uh, actually in front of me here, I've got a, um, a warehouse for a mine um, that I've built um, that's waiting to be installed on the layout. Um, and I've got a kit for what will be the Durango engine house. It's actually... Um, uh, who's it by? That's not, um, yeah, SS Limited. It's a uh, Durango car repair barn, so it's a really long repair barn. I'm going to convert that to a engine house. So that's very cool. In a box, and it's next up. Cool. <laughs> that's like a lot of things at one time. <laughs> wow. Yeah, but they don't move very much. In fact, that box is pretty dusty. <laughs> well, that's an ambitious, uh, ambitious workbench here. You got to have three or four projects going at once, man. Come on. <laughs> you can't do anything with them. They're just there. <laughs> we, we're just as guilty. We do the same thing. I guess stuff all over the place. But I know what I've been working on is uh, because I'm modeling narrow gauge and HON3, um, with the exception of the new Blackstone locomotives, which all just run amazingly well, I've used other things also, and they don't often run as well. And I've come up with what I think is a way to get really good, smooth operations, because I do have DCC on the layout. Mm -hmm. That is, I, I go to the trouble of creating all-wheel pickup on all my steam engines, and all I have is steam engines on uh, on my layout. And, and that, that that's a trick in HON3. 
yeah, the space you have to work with is a little more limited, mm-hmm. but it really ma- makes a difference. And because I like to share my railroad with operations, uh, with operators, nothing takes the fun out of an operating session more than having engines that are not working very well. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Or they hit like a dead spot or, or you name right. it. Right, right. I'm hoping as well that the newest current keepers that are becoming more common, these little um, so what's the capacitors that they fit in, um, will get smaller such that I can fit them in some of my locomotives. <laughs> we, are, that- we are enjoying the benefits of the DCC as well. What, a, what an amazing technology they've come out with on that. And the other thing I've been working on is I've been working on building, scratch building, a a wooden Pennsylvania Railroad coach that was near the end of their wooden passenger car air building era, which was about between 1895 and 1905. And it's called a, a Class PK. But you mentioned Strasburg. I'm guessing you've visited the Railroad Museum of Pennsylvania. Yep, I've been there a few times. Right, and the, the wooden passenger cars that are inside there, are I've always loved those, so I'm building something like one of those. Oh, nice. Very cool. And yes, I, that's so sweet. I made masters out of styrene for the sides, and then from there we're doing resin casting for the sides. Oh, but cool. The, the, thing, the thing that was really a revelation to me is I'm really blessed with having a friend who is skilled with the CAD design programs that you use for 3D printing. Uh, and he he uh, put together the program for the very complicated multi-curvature clerestory roofs on some of those cars, and I just got them back a couple weeks ago from Shapeways, and boy, I'll tell you, I am sold on 3D printing. It's uh, The results are just amazing, but of course, it helps if you have a friend who can do the design work for yeah, you. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, there's some amazing stuff out there in 3D printing and some of the, for the hobby. It's unreal. Some of the stuff you see coming out of the Shapeways is, is, is it's just mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But very cool. That's that's awesome. I I'm glad you guys shared what's what's on your workbench for the week. Uh, well, for the whatever, however long it takes you to get clear off the projects on your workbench. I know that <laughs> I have a few that have been sitting around here for a couple months collecting dust as well. So I think that's everyone's battle. But uh, <laughs> uh, I appreciate it, you guys, and uh, I think we've covered a lot. I would love to actually get Stephen on again and again, and same with you, George. Um, if if you ever have topics that you want to cover on the podcast again, uh, feel free to reach out and, and definitely, you know, we'd love to get you back on the show. It was, yeah, it was a great you. time. I think there's more that we could cover as far as the, the actual, um, I'm afraid we could have talked forever and ever tonight. I know this, um, was, this is probably going to be one of our longest podcasts, actually. <laughs> but it's good. I, 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 uh, I enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun and hopefully, hopefully you guys did. We're gonna have to get you guys both as a tag team again. That was awesome. Yes. Well, we'll um, we'll definitely have you on again if you both don't mind. Well, thank so. you for the opportunity. It was really enjoyable. Okay, I hope everybody enjoyed that interview with George and Stephen. Um, we enjoyed it. It was a great. It was a lot of fun, and it was just awesome that actually George is modeling something that's really in my backyard. Um, next week we'll have another special guest. And I think if I if I'm correct with this, we have guests lined up for like the next three or four weeks. So it should be a great time. Some big names. We got some cool stuff coming. And uh, as usual, you can always check us out on our Facebook page, HO Scale Customs, uh, our Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest. We're on Reddit. 
And uh, don't, you know, also don't forget we have our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash HO Scale Customs. And you can also pick up some cool gear on our uh, Spreadshirt store. There's a link to that on our website. So that's it for the week, guys. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And we will see you guys next week.